Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk to the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the stunning Samwise Kreider, the bodacious Ben Madden, and the kindly Carl Halliburton. Today we have myself, Ange, along with Chuck and JT, and we're going to talk about taking rules from one game and grafting them onto another game. Before we dive into that topic, though, let's ask our Get to Know a Gnome question. What was one time when you were in the middle of a game and ran into rules that ground the game to a halt? And I mean, besides trying to deal with grappling in a previous edition of d <laughs> Fair enough. JT, let's start with you. All right. So this was way back in the day, 90-something. Uh, Vampire Dark Ages was the game I was running. And of course, World of Darkness, their combat rules have always been very scant, very high level. And that's cool because that's the style of game that is, right? It's, it's more about the social interaction and less about the, you know, stabbing somebody in a kidney. So anyway, Vampire Dark Ages obviously is going to be swords and bows and leather armor, almost like a fantasy theme kind of kind of deal. And one of the players says, hey, can I start with the bow? Sure. Why not? You have a bow, you have a quiver of arrows, and, and we moved on. Well, she finally whipped out that bow and shot at a guy that was fleeing rolled well enough to hit, and then we all stopped and looked at each other, like, what's next? And we realized there were no rules for how much damage a bow does. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, maybe we just forgot the rule, right? So so I, I pull out the main Vampire Dark Ages book, and I flip to the equipment section. Bows don't even occupy any ink in the book. The only reason she had a bow is because she asked if she could have one, and I said, yeah, sure. If she had asked, how much does a bow cost? I want to buy one. We would have looked it up in the book and gone, um, bows don't exist in Vampire Dark Ages because they're not in the book. So I very quickly had to, on the fly, make up rules for how much damage a bow does. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, one of my other players was a, a experienced vampire modern times, a masquerade game master. So we kind of looked at each other, collaborated a little bit while still there at the table. It took, I don't know, five minutes. We came up with a set of rules, and they actually worked so well, we just continued running with them. We didn't have to, like, tweak them or modify them down the road. But that's the one time it was like, you could you could see the screech marks on the role-playing table, where we all just mentally stopped and was like, wait a minute, there's there's no bows. So that, that that's my story on uh, having to uh, make up rules on the fly. How about you, Chuck? Well, so before I get into mine, in fairness, if these are vampires... Clearly, a bow and arrow is too much like a stake. They're afraid of it. They don't want to put that in the rule book. That's course, clearly what's yes. going on there. <laughs> don't think about that too hard because it falls apart even more than it does at first glance. Uh, so for me, I really want to use grappling rules with D&D because it's like a groan around the table, but I won't. For me, it's the Dresden Files RPG, which I love, but their magic system is, uh, I'm sure it does what it does extremely well. But I have yet to actually, like, I'm still not sure I'm running it right. And this is years and multiple campaigns later. Yeah, let me ask for a quick clarification. Are you talking about the original Dresden Fate game or the Dresden Accelerated Fate game? The original Dresden Fate game. Okay. I have a great big problem that once I've decided this is a game, I have a lot of trouble shifting gears. It's honestly a marvel that I'm even on D&D 5th edition. And I'm not <laughs> one of those people that's like, no, two, second edition only. But yeah, I, I, I've just not been able to wrap my head around Accelerated. I love the game, obviously. I love the world. I ran it earlier today for some folks. But the Magic, I'm still not convinced I'm running it right. 
so yeah, that's, that's um, the one. Chuck, uh, I have a, a flowchart. Uh, seriously, I have a flowchart for Dresden Files RPG Magic that me and another software engineer friend of mine put together that, that explains how it works. I think I still have it on my hard drive somewhere. If I do, I will send it your way. If I do, I may even send it Rob's way so we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, I was going to say, first of all, bless you. Please send it to me. Second, <laughs> if we mention this on the podcast and somebody doesn't ask for it, I will eat a shoe. Not a large <laughs> shoe, not a dirty shoe, but I will eat a shoe. I, I, and I, and I can't promise because I, I, I can't promise I still have it, but I'm a digital pack rat. So odds are, yeah, I still got it somewhere. Awesome. Yeah, I would super duper <laughs> appreciate that. So sure thing. Right. Hey, Ange, what about you? What what uh, situation caused the uh, breaks to hit on your game? So a few years ago was playing an Urban Shadows game, which is basically it's it's kind of like the World of Darkness games, but uh, powered by the apocalypse system. I highly recommend reading through the book. It's a fantastic read. I have some, basically, and what I'm going to describe is some of the trouble I ran into with actually playing the game. We ended up with a situation where if we had three players in the game. We had kind of connected our characters. We had this kind of loose alliance with each other. And we had a situation where the GM tried to engage with the rules of bonds and debts that are in the system and basically tried to have an NPC force our wizard to sell him my debt to the wizard. So I was playing a werewolf. So the GM was basically just trying to engage with the rules that exist within the game, but the narrative that we had kind of built up through our play and what we had done with the characters is there was no way we would betray each other like that. Okay. So it was like, the wizard was like, no, I'm not giving this to you. And the GM's like, yeah, but he can force you to. And the GM's like, I mean, the, the wizard was like, no, that's not going to happen. I wouldn't do that to her. Okay. Yep, and like, yep. it, it, it kind of ground the game to a halt because the GM was frustrated that he couldn't engage with the rules of the game as they were written. And we, the players, were frustrated because that's not, you know, like, like we understand what you're trying to do, but that's not something that is going to happen with these characters. And it was kind of this disconnect between, it was probably more of a disconnect with the, between the ways we were playing than with a problem with the rules themselves, but it still ground the game to a halt because the rules kind of got in the way of the game. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense because the, there's the letter of the law and the spirit of the law and they're not always the same, right? You know, the, the, the intent of the rules is written or the, direct interpretation of rules is written it's... right and i think i think urban shadows is designed to play on the the ideas of factions and a little more not necessarily full-on pvp but definitely more push and pull between the pcs right and because we only had three players in the game and all of us were kind of outsiders to whatever faction we were part of we had bonded together more than we had bonded with our factions. Right. So, you know, that kind of caused that disconnect when the GM tried to engage with the, the debt rules that would have shuffled things around and played with that dynamic between the characters. Okay. But let's move on to our topic of discussion for today. In today's episode, we're going to talk about grafting rules from one game into another, there's times we do it without even really thinking about it, and there's times we do it with clear intention, 
And we figured it would be a good idea to talk about this and the things you should be mindful of when you do it. Now, Chuck, you initially proposed the topic, so I'm going to toss it at you. Yeah, sure thing. So I have a lot of ideas about this. Uh, when my players play in a game of mine, they sort of sign on for the fact that I'm inevitably going to try something weird and off the wall, and there's going to be some sort of system change, some some grafting from something else. Sometimes that works extremely well, like an example I'm probably going to talk about in this game where I sort of uh, grafted on something from Gumshoe onto Dresden files. Uh, and other times it does not work well, like when I tried to graft on a debate system to Blue Rose, which failed miserably. <laughs> so I, I think the, the first thing, and I, I don't necessarily want to go through like all of my ideas on this because I have a whole bunch of them. And also I'm going to be writing an article on this. I'm at like, some that could points, be an article, Chuck. It is, an ar that's, it is going to be an article as soon as I sit down and write it. Uh, tentatively entitled, actually, it's Gamenstein's monster. But uh, so um, the, the, the main thing that I want to talk about is systems or ideas, right? When you have a something in a game, you are saying that we're going to take this idea, this behavior or this narrative thing, and we're going to put a system behind it. And the actual system doesn't necessarily matter too much. It can be a D20 system. It can be fate. It can be anything as long as your idea is you mechanically engage in this way, you engage in this way based on this part of your background, and this happens. Uh, and that can be done in any number of different ways. And like my favorite example is probably what um, Robin Laws and uh, Kenneth Height call uh, gumshoeing it, which is, I guess, what everybody calls it, which is when you're running a mystery game, uh, the central conceit of gumshoe is if you have the skill, you find the clue. Yeah. And right. it keeps the game from grinding to a halt. And I do that in every game where I have a mystery now. I honestly consider that that facet of gumshoe more of a philosophy mm -hmm. for any type of game where you're dealing with a mystery. Just give the players the damn clue. Right. Let yes. them roll for extra information. Exactly. Exactly. And role-playing games are full of individual nuggets of brilliance like that. And, and I think we should shamelessly raid them and graft them onto other games. Mm -hmm. yep. So, uh, JT, what are your thoughts on this? So you had mentioned that uh, one things your one of the things your your players expect is uh, rules modifications as you go maybe not as you go but mm -hmm. you, you know uh, things are going to shift and change here and there. I think my first point I want to bring up is get player buy in. Mm -hmm. So like you Chuck, if you have a brand new player never gamed with you before, they sit down at the table. It's probably fair for you to warn them, hey, mm -hmm. I'm going to do subsystems that are or you know, hey, uh, I'm going to take the Pathfinder grappling rules and pull them into my D&D 3.0 game because D&D 3.0 grappling rules blow. Mm -hmm. And Pathfinder they fixed do. it. They do. <laughs> and Pathfinder fixed it. Made it simple, right? I roll a die, I add a number. You roll a die, you add a number. High number wins. Off, you know, we move on. Mm -hmm. So giving players fair warning. If it's going to be a major shift, like um, I had a game master who wanted to use the D&D 5 advantage-disadvantage in our Pathfinder game. Mm -hmm. He wanted to get rid of all the fiddly widgets of plus 2, plus 1, minus 4, plus 6, do the math. He just wanted advantage-disadvantage. That's, wa that's a huge change. We may as yeah. well just play 5th edition at that mm -hmm. point, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He did not run this by us. He didn't give us warning. We're in the middle of a combat, and I'm like, oh, I have plus six on my hit roll because of blah, 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 all these things that stack up, right? He's like, oh, no, no, you don't get any modifiers. Just roll 2d20, pick the highest. And that's actually, that's, that's one of those things where this is why you have to be very mindful of when you do this thing. Because while 
Advantage, disadvantage are super simplified compared to the modifiers that existed in 3.5 and Pathfinder. The thing that GM probably didn't take into account is that the ACs on your opponents mm-hmm. take that into account between those two systems. Yes. In 5e, you know, if you have a 15 or higher AC, that's a pretty significant, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, AC. Whereas in Pathfinder, if you have under a 22, wow, you're squishy. <laughs> you know, yes. it's, it's, yes. there's a very, that, that is a mechanical thing that like just swapping that one facet out doesn't fix the system. And you're going to end up with a lot of frustrated players because they need those modifiers to hit those target numbers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think my modifier was beyond plus six. I, I, I sat down and I had done the math and I was like, oh, if I roll a three or better on a D20, I hit the guy. Because my modifiers had stacked up. We we were doing a lot of teamwork-based mm-hmm. things, right? So it wasn't just me providing modifiers for myself, but you know, two other teammates were stacking up, giving me a chance to hit. Because I was the rogue with the sneak attack. The wizard was doing eight another or whatever, because the wizard had you know, gone through all of his spells and was just sitting there, you know, I don't know, doing a dance in front of the goblin, saying, look at me, look at me, and, and annoying the goblin, because he couldn't do anything to the goblin directly. And... Uh, uh, so I had a gu- almost a guaranteed hit, and then all of a sudden, all that just went out the window without warning. So mm-hmm. I had the game master sat down at the start of the session and said, "Okay, guys, we're doing away with mods. We're going to do advantage disadvantage from you know uh, what fifth edition." Then we could have had a conversation mm-hmm. like you brought up, Ange. Okay, are we going to modify armor class? Mm-hmm. You know what? what th- there, there's cascading effects to one rule change. What in we we could have had a fair conversation, not just a surprise, we're rolling these dice now. Yeah, I recently played the Pathfinder Kingmaker RPG, the video game, and like, I had characters with an AC of 40. Oh my goodness, like, wow. You know, it was it was insane, some of the levels of these ACs and their tit rolls, and like, it was a very weird experience having mostly played 5th edition recently, and then switching to like, oh... I forgot what Pathfinder was. <laughs> but you, you were going to say, Chuck? Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say, I think it's really important when we're when we're grafting. I really like this this metaphor of grafting like in a medical way. And I am not a medical professional. I really hope this isn't offensive to anybody. Uh, if so, please let me know and I'll fix it. I'm so sorry. So, <laughs> but, you know, when, when you have like a, an, an organ graft, you need to pay attention to like blood type and all kinds of other things with compatibility. You can't just pick up a system from one game and then drop it into another because you are going to have those points of connection where they aren't mm-hmm. going to work quite as well. Yeah. And yeah. Um, which I, I would almost actually just recommend going back to that idea and saying, OK, what do I like about advantage and disadvantage and why do I want to do that? And maybe your answer is play the game that you're taking that rule from instead. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So one of the, the, the things I wanted to talk about during this discussion was inspiration in D&D. As written, inspiration is the player announces they're using their inspiration and can then roll that next roll, whatever it is, with advantage. Nobody I know does it that way. I nope. certainly don't. Yep, Everyone I, I know has just automatically been like, you know what? It's a re-roll. It's like yep. using a Benny in Savage Worlds. Yep. Yep. I don't like my results. I want a re-roll. And I've even gotten to the point where I have considered, I haven't gotten to this point yet, but I have considered borrowing the the Mutants and Masterminds version of this type of concept, 
in Mutants and Masterminds, you have a hero point. You you roll badly. You want to re-roll it in Mutants and Masterminds because you are superheroes. Spending that hero point to do a re-roll does a thing where if you roll one to ten on the die, mm-hmm. you add an additional ten to your roll. Mm-hmm. So the worst thing you can roll on a hero point is an 11, mm-hmm. because then you're not adding anything to it, just your modifier. But if you roll like a 9 on the die, you add your modifier, and then you add an additional 10, which almost always means you get to succeed. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, usually those points where somebody is reaching for inspiration to to try and do better on the roll, it's because they really, really want that success. Right. And Mutants and Masterminds kind of gives that to you. Now, the thing I haven't sat down and, and parsed out well enough is like, is that going to unbalance things in a D&D game? You know, is that going to, you know, be too powerful in the player's hands? So that's the type of thing you have to consider when taking a rule like that and putting it into a different game. So I, I actually have two thoughts about that. My first one is... I have never regretted giving players additional options or more power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they certainly haven't either. Agreed. You're a GM. You have limitless power, make stuff more challenging, <laughs> and then it's more fun for everybody anyway. And the second thing is, I think that really gets into, so you have hero points, you have inspiration, you have uh, fate points in fate. You have, I mean, these exist every XP in Cypher System. This idea of an in-game currency, the idea, the engine behind that is, Players have limited set of resources that they use to succeed or succeed extraordinarily. And I think that can be taken and make, made to work with any system, though most systems have it. Right. Yes. Yeah. And when I was running a 5-8 campaign, I actually didn't, because by the book, inspiration is either on or off. Either you have one or mm-hmm. you have none. It's a binary. Yeah. I, I think it was in Xanathar's Guide, there was an optional rule they put in there where you can you know, boost that limit to three or something mm-hmm. like that. Before Xanathar's was even published, I was like, eh, I, mm-hmm. I'm going to give my players more than just one at a time. So I allowed them to, to bank up to three of them. If I gave, mm-hmm. if you had three inspiration, I was like, cool, everybody, great fight. Uh, everybody gets an inspiration from it. If you're already at three, well, okay, you, you get nothing. Mm-hmm. So the cap was three, but I allowed them to have three and, and actually had one guy inspire himself three times in a row and he still failed. <laughs> uh, so he, he had four chances at uh, doing whatever it was he was trying to do. He rolled so poorly four times in a row that he still failed at the uh, whatever he was attempting to do, which gave us all a great laugh around the table. It was a good role playing moment. Uh, he stayed in character. So I was like, all right, you just you just gave us joy through your failure. So here's another inspiration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you want to use it now? And he and he said some choice words and said no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he saved it for later. He's just like, I, it was like picking a lock on a chest or something like that. And he was like, nope, we don't know what's in the chest. We'll never know what's in the chest. Mm-hmm. And he like, and the barbarian was like, I'll just smash it open. And the rogue grabs the barbarian by the ear and says, no, we will never know what's in the chest. It's forever a mystery. <laughs> and so they just moved on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was my change to inspiration there, was just giving them extras. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I've just, uh, John, our, our other head gnome, has just started running a D&D campaign that I'm, I'm part of. And he's doing that where you start with, you start with additional inspiration, and he has, a, he has like a cheat sheet of the things you can do with it. So more than just the, 
you know, the re-roll that everyone does instead of what's in the rules. Mm -hmm. He right. also has a couple of other things. Uh, like, he he changed it so that rather than doing a straight re-roll, you could roll a d6 and add it to your roll. Mm -hmm. Ooh, nice. Which, okay. you know, when you, when you're, you know, you know you're this close. You're this yeah. close. Mm -hmm. Just roll the d6 and then you know you're going to hopefully bump it up mm -hmm. to what you need. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So one point, one point Chuck brought up was the the the, the graft, right? That the, you're you're grafting material from one system to another. Sometimes those graphs fail, mm -hmm. right? So some, sometimes mm -hmm. the the original system rejects the new system, so mm -hmm. to speak, right? I think Chuck mentioned something about a failed graft in Blue Rose, right? Yes, yes. yes. So my point is sometimes they fail, and you just gotta toss it. So yep. Chuck. What, what was you, you have an example? Uh, well, uh, hit us. I, I think I might have talked about this on another podcast, but um, it is it is no secret to anyone who knows me that I love Blue Rose with a, a fiery and perhaps embarrassing passion. But I also loved Old Vampire, and uh, there was a book called Requiem for Rome, which was an excellent, excellent vampire book that I think did a wonderful job of bringing together some of my great loves. And they had a system for debate, and I thought, well, my goodness, I love the ideas behind this. So I'm going to try to create a version of the Vampire the Requiem, Requiem for Rome debate system in Blue Rose. And I didn't, I, I, in my mind, I balanced it and I did some like sort of mental playtesting, which, spoiler alert, mental playtesting is not real playtesting. <laughs> uh, and then I sort of leavened in my own stuff and I presented it to the players and they had to use this debate system to essentially get someone out of political hot water in one of the neighboring nations. And it ended up being, uh, by the end of it, a literal circus, because uh, among the many, many problems that I had with it, one of the moves I called the razzle-dazzle, which was essentially like you make BS arguments, and it turned out to be way too powerful so the players ended up saying, like, they brought in dancing monkeys and whatnot, and it became just this ridiculous <laughs> thing. And it was it was a silly, wonderful story afterwards, but it was uh, a horrible, unfun nightmare to run. And when that was done, we took a look at those debate rules, and we set them on fire and agreed to never talk about it again. Uh, we have broken that agreement many, many times. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it, it's you. You have to. Th there are definitely times where it it makes sense to pull in rules from other games or things that just make sense. Like like we mentioned at the beginning, the gumshoe concept. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's like the whole philosophy behind gumshoe is in a mystery, you give the players the clues. If they have the ability related to the clue, they can get more information. Mm -hmm. If they they roll or make a spend or use some sort of resource on it but they still get the core clue. And like, for me, once I heard that, I mean, like, I can think back to this, this game. It was a supernatural game and we were in a roadhouse and there were monsters outside and there was an item in the roadhouse that the monsters wanted and we didn't know where it was. So we started searching for it. We spent an hour and a half oh, no. on searching for it because no one said the exact right phrase of where they were looking to find it. And the GM wasn't a bad guy. He was just a little inexperienced. And it was like, when we were done, I'm like, look, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, if, if, if you've, if, if, you know, if it's gone on a little bit, 
and people haven't keyed into exactly what you thought they would, you need to nudge it in their direction. He had basically, even though we had said we had searched the ladies' bathroom, because nobody said they searched the vent in the ladies' bathroom, uh, we didn't find it. Oh, it's like, it was, it was just, and like, once I heard the concept behind Gumshoe, I'm like, that could have alleviated that problem so well. Yes. You know, because we needed that clue to advance the story, and you never keep a thing that is required to advance the story from your players. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. you can narratively make it as challenging as you want, but you still, in the end, need to give that clue to your players. So that really jives really well with something else that I wanted to bring up, which is this idea of narrative distance which I, I'm, I'm not a writer and actual writers would be able to say this much better than me, but it's the idea of how much attention you pay to something. At the very beginning of a chapter, you might describe what the weather was like and what the sunrise looks like, but if you do that in the middle of a fight, it's going to be garbage. It's, it's how close you, you, what the level of detail that you pay attention to with it. And it sounds like they were trying to have this incredible level of narrative distance with n- incredible, like incredibly close level of narrative distance with no system behind it, where it essentially became this game of like the the RPG version of one of those games where you have to click on something and you have to yes. click on right. exactly the right thing. And and I, I think one of the key things with this grafting on of the system is you don't just graft them on willy nilly. You put in a system to show what you want the focus of the gameplay to be. So if that investigation is something that's important and you know what you're going to do with it, you have a system for that investigation rather than playing Mother May I. So uh, I, I think that that's critically important to this is always create systems where you're putting systems in that you want to spend more time on, because when you spend time on it, you give importance to it and it becomes the focus of the game in some ways. Right. Yeah. Mechanics should help spotlight and focus the important parts of the narrative. Right. And, and if you're playing a game that you have narrative style A plus B but maybe the mechanical game you're playing is B plus C, yeah, that'll probably work, mm-hmm. right? But if you can get that Venn diagram to overlap a little more and a little more with some house ruling, mm-hmm. great. If you've really got to, if you got to like break your own arm to push that Venn diagram to overlap more, you're playing the wrong system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why I think, you know, a lot of times we do end up trying to graft rules like this is when we find a rule in a game that doesn't work like you know going back to the inspiration inspiration as written generally is very unsatisfying mm-hmm. so people don't use it as written i've been playing a a, a different game i'm not going to name the, the system or anything like that but i was looking at the powers for my character and we got to a power and i read the rules for it and if we played that rule as written it would grind the game to a halt mm-hmm. Basically, anytime I would want to use that power for my character, the game has to stop. The GM engages with me in a completely different rule set system game, you know, like sub game. And then when that is done, we go back to the rest of the game in the narrative. And it's like, no, that doesn't that doesn't work. That's we're not going to do that because that's going to interrupt the flow of the game. It's going to sideline the other players. And, you know, there's reasons hacking didn't work in the original. Shadow Rod, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it was a completely different system that took a player out of the game and separated them from the rest of the players. Don't do that mm-hmm. thing. Right. So it's like, that's the type of thing where we just, we, we kind of 
modified the rule. We didn't really graft from any other system, but we modified the rule on how that works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Cyberpunk 2020 had the same thing. One one meat space round was 10 cyber rounds. So the hacker goes to hack the, the door lock or whatever. He gets 10 rounds of action and the whole table gets to sit and watch 10 rounds of action. And it, they're not quick. Uh, they're, they're about yeah. as quick as a meat space round, right? Which in Cyberpunk 2020, they're actually pretty fast as compared to, say, Pathfinder rounds, right? But the, you're still everybody at the table sitting there for 10 rounds. And then the hacker gets to sit there through one round of everybody doing meat space rounds or one meat space round. And then it goes back to the hacker. Yeah. My fix for that was nobody can be a net runner. I mean, that that's a good fix. I just have to ask. How tall were the dice towers that were built during those? Because I'm thinking that they right? might have actually reached the ceiling. Yes, yes. Oh, God. So, yeah. I, you know, like you say that, and I'm almost like, God, I'm, I wasn't, I didn't ever even play that game, but I wish I had a smartphone back then. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, just, you know, some stupid match three game. Mm-hmm. I'll ever, right. you know, like, okay, I'm doing this, and okay, when's my turn? Yep. Um, Yep. You know, and and that's actually a you know like completely different topic, but that's one of those failings of the the eighties and nineties style of game where they were yeah. more focused on emulation rather than creating a game that flowed well. Right. It made sense. It does make sense if you looked at the way cyberpunk yeah. works that you could do more mm-hmm. in you know cyberspace than you could in meat space. Right. But that doesn't make for a good game. Agreed. Yeah, my fix was all netrunners are NPCs. I play the netrunner. Um, when it's time for the netrunner to jack into the system to do the thing, I figure out, okay, the system is, this is, is say, has three dice. The netrunner is good enough to have five dice. So I'll roll 3d10, add them together for the system, 5d10 for the netrunner, high roll wins. And I tell her, and maybe if it's close enough, it's going to be two rounds for the netrunner, mm-hmm. two meat space rounds for the netrunner to do his thing. So the netrunner would be in there for 20 of his rounds. But I tell the players, yep, he's still jacked into the door trying to get through. Bad guys are still shooting at you. You got to shoot back. And we'll just do the, the, the real meat space round. Mm-hmm. And we'll do two of those. And all of a sudden, the door opens. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And, we move, and we move on. They, they don't have to. The players don't experience the time lag, which was the key uh, important difference. Yeah. Having said that, I did run one campaign that was Netrunner only. Everybody was a Netrunner. Because I wanted to experience that part of the game as game master, mm-hmm. right? I, I hadn't actually run net running as a game master, mm-hmm. and we and I had three players, and we had so much fun. Man, that was a blast because it it was there was meat space stuff and net running stuff, and we always made sure that they if everybody was if one person was jacked in, everybody was mm-hmm. jacked in. That that was kind of our social agreement, mm-hmm. and and we just had so much fun with that campaign. I think we've covered a lot here. Is there any any last words you want to say on the topic of grafting rules from one system or another? Okay, uh, I was going to, just one other thing I wanted to bring up is sometimes it happens by accident, especially mm-hmm. when these systems are very, they're siblings, right? Mm-hmm. Going from D&D 3.0 to 3.5 to Pathfinder, the changes are very subtle. So it's very easy to, oops, I pulled a rule out of my head. That's really the D&D 3.0 rule, but we're playing D&D 3.5 or maybe Pathfinder, whatever. Um, it, roll with it and then correct it later. You know, if you're the player, make a note, you know, 
hey, tell Game Master after game he got rule wrong. And maybe you you leave the rule, quote unquote, wrong mm-hmm. because it's better for the game. Mm-hmm. If it turns out the actual rule is written, is, is better for the game, uh, talk to the Game Master after the session is over mm-hmm. uh, yeah. or between session on, on your uh, Slack channel, your Discord channel or, or whatever. And don't make the Game Master feel bad for, for getting mm-hmm. a rule wrong because especially in the big, thick tome style mm-hmm. games like Pathfinder and D&D and all that, yeah. there's a lot of rules. <laughs> I, had a, <laughs> so. I had a moment last night in, in my, my ETU game where we got to combat and it had been so, so long since I had run a combat, <laughs> my brain froze. And I just kind of like looked at the camera to my players in Zoom and I'm like, how combat? How do? <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry, guys, my brain just froze. Right? So we basically right? had to like relearn what we needed to do real quick. Mm-hmm. You know, we fell into it pretty quickly, but it was still just like, oh, God, how do? Right. Yeah. Chuck, any last words from you? Honestly, if you play a lot of games, try grafting systems. It's fun. Even if it fails, you learn something not to do. And and I find, if nothing else, it keeps games that would otherwise... Gaming never gets stale, but it keeps games more fresh and more fun and more interesting. And and I'll add on to that. If you have any interest in designing games, do that. Do what Chuck just said. Play, yeah. with, play with mixing rules. Play with, you know, all of that. Because, you know, well, you know, you may need to just modify some rules for your home campaign. If you want to make something to share with a larger group of people, play with the rules. Play with them, see how things work. Yep, excellent. Okay, think we can get out of here. This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You two can be a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website. The Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the Post Rules Glue, just like the sticky stuff on Post-its. This is the stuff you can slap on a rule and add it to any game and then pull it off right after again when you've decided you're done with it. If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Mr. Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Bonus experience. Ray and Monica are two old friends exploring gameplay and design. Hey, game design there. Through the lens of diversity while sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer. Yep, die mad about it. <laughs> you can find all of us at GnomeStew.com, at GnomeStew on Twitter, and GnomeStew on Facebook. Gnomes, where else can we find you on the internet? Chuck, go! Uh, at innocuouschuck on twitter.com. I'm usually locked down for a whole bunch of reasons, but just ask. I'll probably let you on there. Prepare to see too much about my politics. And what about you? Uh, you can find me at orikes13, O-R-I-K-E-S-13, on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter is kind of dead right now because I mostly use it to post table selfies and there haven't been cons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Instagram is mostly pictures of my cats. JT, what about you? Twitter is at JT Evans. And then uh, my web, if you want to find me elsewhere, hit my website. Top of every page is links to a whole bunch of other social media goodness. And the website URL is jtevans.net. Excellent. Do you guys think we avoided the stew this week? If not, I'm going to house rule a way out. Ah, well, I was thinking that even if we don't avoid the stew, at least we'll have lots of parts for it. <laughs> <laughs> Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. He wrote, rolled so horribly, four times in a row, in a row, wow.